right, so we have been doing a sermon series on race and the gospel, and we've gotten to touch on how that looks in scripture, and um, we're also kind of touching in, touching on what it looks like right now in our current culture, and some pretty controversial things, and so today we're speaking on white privilege, white guilt, and being woke. Um, <laughs> and so Chelsea and I will it's kind not of just, a joke. We'll kind of go back and forth um, on our different experiences, and just um, sharing different perspectives on that, and so... Uh, that's what we'll be doing this morning. Let's okay. Start off. Yeah. So um, we're going to start with talking about white privilege. Okay. <laughs> so fun. So the definition we're using for the purpose of our talk today is from a book called Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together? and other conversations about race. A few of us have been reading this book this semester, and it's been really helpful. It's written by a psychologist named Beverly Tatum, and she uh, she defines white privilege as the systematic advantages of being white. But for what we're talking about today, to elaborate a little bit, I would add that it's the privilege of not worrying about or having to think about certain issues regarding race. So it's kind of the definition we're working with today. It's it's. Some people define it differently, and so I think it's just better to say, here's how we're looking at it for the purpose of our talk this morning. Um, so I was reading in a Pew Research article and found um, kind of some shocking information about how different races view racial equality. And it said that 62% of blacks say that white people benefit a great deal from advantages in society that black people do not have. What shocked me was that 13% of white people agreed with that statement. So 62% of black people said, yes, white people benefit from advantages that we don't have, and only 13% of white people actually agreed with that. So despite what statistics say about white, pri white privilege, which most data supports the concept, um, it's clearly a strong feeling among people of color, specifically black people. And if our church body in any way mirrors that feeling or statistic, we have a lot of things to talk about. We have a lot of things to learn and discuss. Um, so we're going to give some examples of what white privilege or lack thereof looks like in real life scenarios that you guys might find yourselves in um, and in larger scale systems as well. Um, I'm going to be covering the smaller scale or day to day. Um, I have to pretty consistently think through situations I'm walking into and consider how I may be perceived. Um, I know people come with preconceived ideas on how I may act or may um, speak because of the color of my skin. Before I even speak, they already have an assumption about me. I'm fighting stereotypes as soon as I walk into a restaurant, work, even our community, and other general settings. Recently in our small group, we were talking about some of the experiences, experiences don't know why that happened, in these different <laughs> settings. That was embarrassing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I hate so much. Uh, recently in our small group we were talking about our different experiences in these different settings and so uh, it was pretty clear that like this experience was pretty similar for minorities and the experience was pretty similar for white people but different in both aspects like how white people experienced it they all kind of agreed on the same deal and how minority experienced it we were all like yeah that's pretty normal for us um, and so restaurant service came up and I think that's pretty, a pretty common one that people can um, easy talk about. Everyone of color in our small group could recall a time where they felt out of place or discriminated. Um, and then there was a common theme of just like what bad service looked like and how we responded to that. If and when I got bad service, my assumption is that it's because I'm black and they probably don't think I'm going to tip them well or let alone tip them at all. Um, if Chelsea gets bad service, um, her race is not even a question. She can just assume she had a bad server, that, and she can even be like, they may have had a bad day. She can come up with other reasons for them that have nothing to do with race. Or mine, the likelihood it is probably because of the color of my skin. 
Um, and I also say that as someone who has served at, served at restaurants and know other people who have served at restaurants, and that is a mentality. Um, minorities not tipping well, especially black people, is a pretty accepted stereotype in the restaurant industry, which is why I can, do, I can and do automatically assume that is why I'm being treated differently and why Chelsea can just be. Um, our responses to bad services were also different. Uh, the white people in our group would either leave a small tip or not tip at all. They may even be so bold as to ask to speak to the manager. Um, minorities in our group, which was pretty interesting, and even hearing it out loud, I was like, That's, it, it doesn't really make much sense, um, would overtip and even overspend to prove a point and often stop at that to not perpetuate the stereotype. We don't want to further encourage this mindset and prove to them, like, you know what, you're right, minorities don't tip. Um, but to really, like, in our mind, make a statement and justify this large group of people that we aren't even necessarily going to be in contact with. And then another example uh, is shopping. Chelsea and I both have um, tote bags and enjoy shopping. I um, <laughs> have pretty similar taste. Um, and for those of you who don't know what a tote bag, it's just uh, a large fashionable bag. Um, very fashionable, very cute. <laughs> Um, before I even walk into a store, I think through, do I want to bring my person and bring attention to myself? I do not intend to do anything wrong, but I know how it looks. And I do not want to give anyone a reason to target me. I also don't have to just leave my purse in my car and grab my wallet because I just don't want to deal with it. I do this because I've been in a store before and I've had someone approach me and keep a close eye on me, not because I'm practice if they're practicing good customer service, but they are making sure I don't steal anything. They are polite when they do it, but it is obvious. When Chelsea walks into a store, she does not even have to think about whether or not the people in the store think she is stealing. If someone comes up to her, she can probably assume mm -hmm. it is simply to help her. I should not have that thought process. I should not have a different experience from Chelsea because of the color of my skin, but I do. Not having to think through it, that is a privilege that Chelsea experiences and I don't. Um, the most subtle example may be how people choose to describe you or even how you choose to describe yourself. If you can start off a description of yourself and not mention your race or ethnicity, you are privileged. You are part of a dominant group that has set the norms. You have no need to include your race but it, because it doesn't effectively, I'm sorry, actively affect you. It just seems it like, like it is what it is, but minorities tend to include their race when describing themselves and it is noted when they are described by someone else. You may wonder why that's important or notable. It is important because that description becomes your identifier. It follows you in every situation for good and bad. People unknowingly think of you through that identifier and stereotypes that go along with it. We can see that in examples that I already gave through our different experiences. Another, another example I have is a, is a personal one. When I was in high school, I dated the whitest of white boys, a redhead, like, came from my upper class white, white family. Um, like, how you would describe, like, you're, like, wasp in America, like, he was it. Um, and I, like, we were in the same honors classes, I was very involved in school, I was, I mean, I was known as, like, a good girl, I was real, very well known within the school, um, and we started dating. And so he brought me to his parents' house a lot, and we would hang out with his family, and it was always just kind of, like, really polite. It wasn't necessarily welcoming. Um, and I remember we had went to a wedding and everyone was a little like, I won't say like inebriated, but like tipsy. Like they were like feeling a little free. And <laughs> I remember his mom came up to me and she like was just kind of expressing how, how happy she was that I was dating her son. And like unknowingly just like, was like, um, 
I'm, I'm really glad that you, I was really worried that you were going to be a bad influence on Hunt and that I, I'm so glad that like, you are not what I expected. Like, like we just thought she was complimenting me. Like, sincerely <laughs> thought she was complimenting me. And I remember that moment, I was like, like trying to think through like, I am known to be a good kid. Like, like there was no reason mm-hmm. for her to have that assumption except for the color of my skin. Whether or not he told his parents the first night he was bringing me home that I'm a black girl, the fact that they saw the skin of my color automatically put something in their minds about me. I was identified as a specific type of person mm-hmm. until I proved them differently. That is something I have to do pretty consistently throughout yeah. my life in most situations. And I would even say that here. You know, like we, we come across with these little little comments and it's kind of evident like what you believe about what people look like me. You assume I should be a little sassy. You, you assume I should, I should know how to dance. You may even assume I should know how to sing because that's what black people do. Yeah. You know, and like those are things that don't seem so, like they seem harmless, but it, it shows me that mm-hmm. you do have assumptions that you may not realize you held. So I'm gonna talk about some large scale examples of white privilege and I'm gonna keep this pretty brief because Brad spoke a few weeks ago about these statistics and this data. So I'm just gonna reiterate some of those points. So first is in our school systems. Um, Whites and Asians are more likely to graduate high school and attend and graduate college than blacks and Latinos. It's easier to navigate these processes, college applications, financial aid applications, if you have someone close to you to help you, if you have a parent who's gone through that process or an older sibling. Um, Students who will be the first in their family to attend college don't have that support. And they're more likely to be found in black and Hispanic families. Um, Wealthier neighborhoods with higher property taxes in turn have better schools. Those schools have better programs, better resources, extracurricular activities, and a number of other benefits. But the thing is that whites are more likely to live in these neighborhoods because as we learned in Brad's talk about statistics, whites are 16 times more wealthy than blacks and Latinos. Um, We're not ignoring the fact, we're going to make this point, I'm going to make this point a lot, because I, never mind, I'm not going to explain why I'm going to make this point, I'll explain that later, but we're not ignoring the fact that wealth is a type of privilege in and of itself, and that not every white person has the privilege of being wealthy. Mm -hmm. We're going to talk more about that in a second, okay, so just calm, cool your jets if you're getting angry. Um, But overall, our school system favors white students. In our criminal justice system, again, as Brad taught us a few weeks ago, blacks are much more likely to get arrested and receive harsher sentences than whites and Latinos, and they are more likely to be arrested for violent crimes. And this can contribute to some overall distrust or fear or negative feelings regarding the police, and that's something that many people of color can attest to, and I'll say more about that in a second as well. And the last large-scale system is our socio- is socioeconomic status. Just to briefly remind you guys that blacks and Latinos are twice as likely as whites to live under the poverty line. And there are more black kids living in poverty, even though there are five times as many white kids living in the United States. Brad made this point a few weeks ago, and I don't think he explained it very well. Um, <laughs> so I'm going to explain it again. Like, why that's a big deal. Imagine you have two pie charts, okay? This pie chart is telling you just how many kids of each race live in America, all right? It's majority white. There are more white kids in the United States than any other race, okay? So that's this pie chart. It's just how many live in the United States, okay? This pie chart is how many kids in the United States are living in poverty, okay? There are more black kids living in poverty than white kids, even though there are more white kids in the United States. 
So it's disproportionate. If the if poverty were a fair representation of our country, not that it's fair for anyone to live in poverty, but if it were a fair represent, representation, there would be more white kids in poverty because there's more white kids in America. But there's more black kids in poverty than white children. Like percentage, but I don't really understand why that if there's a higher percentage, there's more whatever, Matt, whatever, oh my gosh, don't interrupt me, jeez oh, yeah. I'm confused, what are you asking? Okay. higher percentage does that make sense, do you guys see, so it's um, it's disproportionate so, y'all are with me on that, that's a big deal, okay um, cool, so I'm going to move on yeah. to our next point, which is where I'm probably going to talk the most, and this is our section on white guilt um so I really struggle with this. To be total, I am, I, I have, to be honest with you guys and to be bold with you guys, I have very deep shame about being white. I am very ashamed of the color of my skin. And I feel vulnerable saying that to you guys. And it's, I'm not saying like, this is how you all should feel. I don't want people to feel this way. But this is something I deeply struggle with. I hate that I'm white. I understand that it comes with privileges, but I really struggle with it. And so when we, were assigned the topic of, of speaking about white guilt. I was like, okay, I guess, like, I, I don't know. It's hard for me to talk about this. Um, but I'm just being honest with you guys. And I don't really know where that started. It's hard to say where that started. I remember um, when I was little, I was very concerned about slavery. Like, I was really worried that it had ever happened. And I remember checking out books from my school library about Harriet Tubman and hating it, but, like, forcing myself to read it. I was like, I need to read this. Like I can remember being in like third grade being like, I need to just know about this and watching the Prince of Egypt. You guys know where it starts out with slavery. And I was like, Oh my gosh, Oh my gosh, Oh my gosh. Like so stressed out that this had ever happened. Um, but, and I don't know why I was like that. Couldn't tell you, but I grew up in a lower middle class, mainly white community. Don't, I never had any overt conversations about race. Definitely not about what it meant to be white in America. I don't know any white person that's had that conversation. Um, I went to average schools. Neither of my parents came from wealth, but they did grow up in the middle class, and one was college educated. My mom's here today. <laughs> hey, mom. <sighs> okay, so um, we never had a ton of money, but we were by no means living in poverty, right? Um, but I remember being very aware of our financial situation, being very worried about it, and I had to work pretty hard to get what I wanted, like scholarships in my first car, et cetera, et cetera. But I came from a network of support that really filled in gaps for me. I was a part of a church body. A lot of you know Mandy Lanciani. She sold me her car that was easily worth $3,000. Gave it to me for $1,000 because that's all I had saved. So I was a part of a network. I was a part of a community that was financially stable enough where there were people in that community who could give me a car for $2,000 less than what they could have gotten it for somewhere else, right? That's a privilege. I had older siblings that helped me get jobs because they had had a job somewhere. And these are like good, decent jobs, right? They're with after school programs, summer camps, you know. They knew people there. They could get me a job. That's a privilege. Um, so when I look at my personal experience, I see great areas of privilege despite challenges. And I can move through life from here on out. And nobody really needs to know that my family struggles financially or that the only way I got my college degree was by starting with a community college scholarship. I don't worry about what potential employers will think when they see my name on an application like Batabale Kamtala <laughs> um, or what they'll think when I walk into an interview. 
I'm not worried about them making snap judgments. I can move past the disadvantages that I personally experienced and kind of be a new person in a sense. People of color never lose their skin color. Don't make a joke about Michael Jackson. Okay. I was like, someone's going to think it and I've got to say it. Um, people of color are always working against the disadvantages that come with the color of their skin. No matter how high they raise up in the ranks, they're always going to be black, Hispanic. Um, and I'll say again, we're talking about racial privilege here. My circumstances and opportunities were just as much a result of my socioeconomic status as they were of the color of my skin. Okay. Like I said, I was a part of a network financially stable enough to get me a good deal on a car. Like it wasn't all just because I was white. Um, but I really started to think actively about these things in high school and in college as I studied social work. For those of you that don't know, I'm a high school social worker. Um, and really, as I, <laughs> as I started dating Brad and learned a lot from him about this, I remember one of, my, one of our first conversations, I was like, what's something that makes you feel really uncomfortable? I think he's, he's going to say, like, you know, when you hold your hand out too early for a handshake. And he's like, racism. <laughs> I was like, jeez. Okay. <laughs> I was like, oh, I was, mine was when I, like, spit food on somebody. But um, you're right, racism, right, right. So, but I learned a lot from him, and that really sparked a lot of interest in me as well. And my job as a social worker, I work in a high school um, with students who are at risk of dropping out. This literally puts these things in front of me every day. I work in a school where racial minorities are the majority. Most Hispanics I work with are undocumented. Most of my students come from single parent families. A lot of them have a parent who's been incarcerated. Um, they're hovering right around the poverty line or well below the poverty line. Um, and to be honest, a lot of my young black males particularly are more thankful and excited that they haven't been arrested than they are that they're gonna be the first in their family to graduate from high school. I work with a lot of young Hispanic men who are supporting themselves, fully supporting themselves as teenagers. And they're more concerned. They're working full-time jobs, going to school, more concerned about being pulled over and wrongfully arrested than anything else. They don't know how to apply to college, but they know exactly what they do and don't have to say to a police officer. When I was in high school, the first time I got pulled over, I cried so hard, they offered me a ride home. Like, I would have told them anything. I was like, here's my social security number. Here's my address. I've never done anything. Like, you can call my parents. Like, I was sobbing. I was so not savvy about that. My parents had never told me how to talk to a police officer. They never had to. But these young men, they know exactly. They know what to say when someone shows up at their door. They know they don't have to let a police officer in their house without a warrant. Mm -hmm. And that says a lot about the messages they've been sent their whole life. Mm -hmm. um, so overall, I'm going to bring all this back to guilt. But I've always felt strongly about this. But honestly, y'all, I couldn't ignore this crap if I wanted to. Like, I, I, am, I have to talk to my students about this. I have to listen to them express their frustration and anger. You know, I was just talking to a young black girl, and she has this girl that's bullying her. And one of her first, first points was, I can't do anything because I'll be the angry black girl. I can't say anything. I can't talk to the teacher. And I was like, mm, I don't. Well, I'm white, so I don't. I was never the angry white girl. That wasn't a thing. And it's hard. I have to, like, constantly learn to relate to these kids. But, um... I think a lot of people when they, a lot of white people, when they hear about white privilege, they respond in one of two ways. And that's with this guilt, which I'll talk about in a second, or it's defensiveness. It's like, this makes me the bad guy. This means I was the perpetrator. I'm the perpetrator of oppression. This is my history. Like, I don't, a lot of white people don't relate to that. It hurts because we don't feel like we've done anything. We don't feel like we've caused anything. 
We aren't comfortable taking responsibility or apologizing for something because we don't, we really don't feel like it's our fault. A lot of right, white people respond with this defensiveness or they say, which we'll talk about, we've talked about a lot and we'll talk about it again. They say like, but I wasn't privileged in this way or this way or this way or this way. So this can't include me. Or we respond with guilt. We just feel ashamed. We feel like there's no way that we could make this better and we don't know what to do to make it better. And this guilt hurts, but honestly, you guys, it's a fraction of what minorities have felt. Like, I, well, I'll explain on that in a second. In some ways, we just need to let ourselves feel the guilt and use it to help us understand the minority experience. Um, some ways that I've learned to deal with this guilt is, first of all, understanding it's not, a min- it's not minority's responsibility to alleviate that guilt for me. No black person or Hispanic person is responsible for making me feel good about being white. It's not their job. Um, I've learned to chip away at this by communicating about things that hurt people and being aware, trying not to be a part of the problem. Um, look at everything through a different lens. How could what I'm about to say or do hurt somebody or how could it send a negative message? Um, I don't feel like the stereotypes of white people fit me personally. I want to bridge the gap between black and Hispanic groups and white groups, but I don't want to make other people uncomfortable and I don't know what they're going to think about me. That sounds a lot like the minority experience in the United States. Um, so a lot of you know Sandra Salvador. She's my very good friends. And so I do a lot of stuff with her family and her family is Mexican and El Salvadorian. And so yesterday I went to a baby shower for her brother. I was the only white person at this party, which if y'all know me, you know, I'm like, yes, this is my, this is my zone. Like I loved it. Right. Um, but I did have the thought a few times of like, is everyone staring at me? Like, is everyone thinking something about me as a white girl here? Like, am I dressed weird? Do I look okay? Well, how do I act? Should I speak in Spanish or should I speak in English or should I assume they speak English? Like, what do I do? How do I handle myself? And they're all thinking about me and they're all noticing me. Probably none of which is true. They didn't give a crap. We're like, who cares? But um, I have, to, I like in the moment was like, wait, each of these Hispanic people have probably felt this way in their classrooms, in their jobs, in social settings over and over and over again. So it's okay for me to have to feel a little bit of that discomfort. Um, and once I realize that, it's like, okay, I can use this guilt. I can use this guilt to learn and relate. Oh, I just talked a lot. Okay, go. Uh, my encounters with white guilt are obviously not personally experienced, but relayed to me through conversations with my friends. Um, something I've had to note with white guilt is that this is a new burden for my white friends, and they're trying to carry it and learning not to be upset with them because I've already been carrying it. Um, race is not a lighthearted matter. It comes with so many emotions and so much history. It can be overwhelming to face, um, especially if you haven't had to think about it. You know, it really... It is a lot. For me, a lot of these things are just the way they are. It's how life works. It is unfair, but it's where we're at. Having carried slash carrying that burden, it can be easy for minority groups to be frustrated with white people who are having a hard time with white guilt. The problem is that we've had to suck it up. We've had to find ways to deal with it Mm -hmm. early on. And those ways typically do not address the problem, and that is not okay. Because this mindset allows us to accept the current situation as a forever deal, instead of continuing the conversation to make the changes needed. These conversations aren't easy, but good things often aren't. Yeah. Because of this, I think your white guilt is good. It shows me you're feeling something that I've had to bury. It affirms that my experience isn't okay. It also shows me that I can be understood and not just analyzed. Mm-hmm. Your guilt isn't necessarily a bad thing just because it feels like it. 
Godly sorrow, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 7, 10, 11 says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, Mm -hmm. but worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you, what earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. Let your guilt bring about these things. A struggle for my white friends is defending that they aren't racist or that they don't benefit from racism, as Chelsea was just touching on. You probably aren't racist yourself, but you benefit from a racist system. Mm -hmm. There is passive racism and there is active racism. Um, The author that that Chelsea referenced earlier referenced it um, in a really good way. She gives a good example, so I'm just going to read from it so that you guys can hear it as well. I sometimes visualize the ongoing cycle of racism as a moving walkway at the airport. Active racist behavior is equivalent to walking fast on a conveyor belt. This person engaged in active racist behavior, has identified with the ideology of white supremacy, and is moving with it. Passive racist behavior is equivalent to standing still on the walkway. No overt effort is being made, but the conveyor belt moves the bystanders along to the same destination as those who are actively walking. Some of the bystanders may feel the motion of the conveyor belt, see the active racist ahead of them, and choose to turn around, unwilling unwilling to go to the same destination as the white supremacist. But unless they are walking actively in the opposite direction at a speed faster than the conveyor belt, unless they are actively anti-racist, they will find themselves carried along with the others. I want to emphasize with this example that it is not every white person who is actively racist, Mm -hmm. but many are passively racist Mm -hmm. by not turning around to go the opposite direction. And that book post, what? Oh, thank you, Judy, what's up my girl? Okay, and that book um, poses a question that it's, it's not, are all whites racist? The question needs to be, how can more whites be actively Mm anti-racist? How can more whites be aware and find ways to lift up your brothers and sisters of color who are fighting against this. Black people don't need me to be their voice. Hispanics don't need me to be their voice. I'm not a savior for any person of color. But sometimes my voice will speak louder than theirs. And sometimes I need to say, hey, listen to what this person is saying. I'm a white person, I have privilege in this country, and listen to them. Oh my gosh, I almost knocked this over. Got a little charged up, sorry. So I'm going to go into detail talking about this privilege deal because I know a lot of people, um, when they hear white privilege, they think certain things. And so we want to clarify a few things. Um, There are different, and that's all for Tabby. Bye, Tabby. Good job. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Okay, so there are different categories of privilege. You You may not have had, you as a white person, may not have had the same experience as a white person who grew up in wealth. Maybe you grew up in a broken home. Maybe you grew up in a low-income household. Maybe you're the first in your family to graduate high school, or you didn't identify with the majority faith. Maybe you grew up in an atheist home, which when you're living in the South is the minority, right? Maybe you grew up in a home that practices another religion than Christianity. That's, you're in the minority in that sense. Um, And when we think about privilege, when we hear the term privilege, we think about things being handed to us. We think that means we've never had to work. But that doesn't describe the experience of many of many of you. I know most of you are very hardworking, and I've worked hard for what you've accomplished, and have had to overcome your own sets of challenges and barriers. 
But like we said earlier, white privilege is usually something you don't even realize you're benefiting from. Mm -hmm. Like the examples Tabby gave. It's almost an invisible set of discrimination. It's an invisible type of discrimination. I don't realize that no one's following me through a store. I don't realize that no one's giving me bad service because they assume I'm going to tip poorly. I just don't think about it. And that's, those are types of white privilege. Um, it's a set of advantages that people of color don't have. But you'll never know that unless you become aware of the minority experience in the United States. Mm-hmm. So what can we do about this? What are some reasonable first steps? This is where we're going to talk about being woke. <laughs> All right. So... Um, <laughs> How can we work to be actively anti-racist as a community and on the individual level? So the term being woke uh, means awareness of injustice and racial tension. And we're, tension. I said that word kind of funny. Awareness of injustice and racial tension and working actively against those things. So it's using this lens when you look at situations or scenarios. Seeing, okay, not to be like, I'm going to go looking for things to fight about and looking for things to protest, but kind of like being aware. How am I being treated differently than my friend who's black or Hispanic or Asian in this circumstance? How did I get, how did I get spoken to differently? What assumptions weren't made about me? Um, and just kind of using that lens when you look at things. And it's asking good questions. And asking first, is it an okay or good time to ask mm-hmm. you these questions? That's really important. People of color don't owe you anything. They're not simply there to educate you about their experience. Don't give them the responsibility of speaking on behalf of everyone who looks like them. Mm -hmm. White people hate when that's done to us. We get so mad when we're expected to speak on behalf of people who own slaves. Our first response is, that wasn't me. Get over it. That was so long ago. But then we turn around and expect one black person to speak to us about the entire black experience in the United States. Mm -hmm. That's not fair. That's not their job. Tabby. Um, I also want to point out that we need to be careful not to assume that every person of color has thought about these things. Mm -hmm. Just like we're not assuming that every white person has processed how they have benefited from white privilege. Um, That being said, it is everyone's responsibility, including minorities, to really think about this. Not in a woe is me way, what have I done wrong, Mm -hmm. um, and who can I blame. But in the same way that we're calling our white brothers and sisters to consider and think through these things. It may not have been your personal experience, but I can guarantee you it is the experience of many people who look like you. You can look at the stats I presented several weeks ago. You can listen to the testimonies of people in our ministry from Pizza Theology and see that just here. Mm-hmm. Just because you don't, have, you don't want it to be that way or you don't want it to be real does not mean that it's not real. Um, and now I'm going to move into our final thoughts. Um, in the most basic terms, for a disciple, it is about choosing to step outside of yourself mm-hmm. and seeing the perspective from your brother's and sister's view. I say that for both sides. Yeah. This is not about reveling in someone else's guilt. Thank you. Um, or for you to sit in your own. Mm-hmm. Both lead to making it simply about you. Yeah. There's no progress in that. This is your opportunity to change the normal and do the uncomfortable thing. Have hard conversations that you know won't end with the solution. Yeah. I think that's something that's really hard for a lot of us. And it's hard for me, which is why it's exhausting. And I really liked Chelsea's point about, see if I'm at a place to talk about this right now. It is, is not easy to talk about your experience. Mm-hmm. There's, there's so much that weighs on that. Mm-hmm. Remember, it is your experience. If you can think about a sweet moment where your parents 
you know, really took care of you or like held you and you knew that you were loved, like that may bring tears to your eyes. That's an experience. I've had both good and negative. You're asking me to bring all of that mm-hmm. into one moment. And not that I don't want to, but I may not always want to. And I would ask you to do that for anyone you're speaking to, to make sure that you're being sensitive to where they're at in that moment. Um, and understand that like it's okay if it doesn't end with a solution. These things are not easy things. If they were, we would have fixed this already. Right. Yeah. And it's not fixed. Mm-hmm. Have hard conversations so you aren't going by assumptions and stereotypes. Mm-hmm. Something else that I've noticed, people really want to believe they don't believe in stereotypes. But trust me, you do. Mm-hmm. I do. We all do. We, from a child, you have to learn to start categorizing things. And something about our culture starts to seep in and tells mm-hmm. you this is how these people are. This mm-hmm. is how they function. And it becomes an us versus them mentality. And you don't even realize it. Because, mm-hmm. yes, you've been around them. But you haven't had to live life with them. So right. you don't know. So just really take the opportunity to step in that discomfort and know that it is good to realize there's some icky things in you. It's, I mean, it's yeah. a lot like learning about sins that you yeah. didn't realize were a big deal. You know, just realizing like this is something that has to be dealt with and just by putting it on the back burner is not going to make it go away. This isn't something we should only address in this semester, but we need to continue to have ongoing conversations with the people in our lives. Mm-hmm. Um, really quickly, she was talking about stereotypes and it reminded me of a funny story because my mom is here. So I was in elementary school and we were in the car to pick up, I guess, like an older sibling from school or something and the line in the parking lot was not moving and my mom is like oh my gosh (laughs) she doesn't talk like that but it's like a running joke that we make her sound way southern she was like oh my gosh why is this line not moving and I go it's probably Mexicans and my mom whips around and she goes that is racist and we will not talk like that in this family so clearly that didn't come from my mom or my dad where did I hear this idea oh and I go mom they don't know the laws of our country like where did I get that it was not from my parents it was from some part of my society some message that if you're Mexican you weren't born here and you don't know how to drive which I don't believe we all know that's not true. But yeah, I, my mom was like <gasps> disgusted with me. So go, mom. Um, so who knows? Oh. Yeah, and she raised me, so we all know that wasn't easy. But um, yeah, I don't know where I got that message. That stereotype seeped into my third grade mind from somewhere. So even if you didn't grow up in a racist family, these messages come to you. So anyways, my final thoughts. Um... Lean into the discomfort of these conversations, particularly this is to the white people in the room. Lean into this discomfort. It is okay that it doesn't feel good to talk about. These conversations aren't here to make you feel good. We're not talking about race so that you as a white person can come to terms with your white guilt. That's not the purpose. Mm -hmm. To think that that is is to be selfish. Um, Don't avoid it because it makes you uncomfortable. Be okay. Okay, yeah, we'll talk about it. Okay, I'll take, I will be kind of the bad guy in this conversation and I'll apologize for things that I maybe didn't do. That's okay. Um, I can vividly remember having a teacher in high school who we would now describe as woke. Um, She was my U.S. history teacher. Giving us some of the more realistic depictions of history. And we were like, wait, what? Like, the white guys were the bad guys in that situation? Like, we didn't save all the native americans when we came here for thanksgiving like we just it was like shocking to us shocking we were like trail of tears what and so um and it just like sucks to hear that 
you that you're like I, I don't relate to that that story doesn't line up with what I've a always heard or B feel like who I am right but this discomfort helps us relate on a small scale granted but it helps us relate to our brothers and sisters of color there are like I said earlier there are countless elements that I as a white person will never understand but that discomfort and that feeling like I'm not understanding how to identify with the color of my skin and I'm struggling through this and I have to realize how to talk about this like Tabby said people of color have been figuring that out since they were young and so as white people it's like okay now is my time to struggle through this and to understand it's not going to feel easy um have a lot of grace for each other just have a lot of grace for each other at the end of the day, regardless of what the people in this room feel about white privilege, what they feel about race, they're your brothers and sisters in Christ. Yeah. And you have a responsibility to love them and to have grace for them. Mm-hmm. I remember, so this past week, we went on a trip to New Orleans, and it was me, Tabby, Sierra, and Sandra. So I was the only white person on this trip. And we were sitting at dinner one time, <laughs> and they all laughed at me, but I was being so serious. I was like, thank you guys so much for loving me, even though I'm white. Like, for loving me, even though you have been hurt by white people and you have been, you've experienced discrimination from white people. And thank you for looking at me and not seeing that. And they laughed at me, of course, because they're the worst. And I was like, you can laugh all you want, but I'm so serious. And Tabby goes, I know. She was sweet for a second. It was really sweet. But having a lot of grace for your friends who are white, who don't maybe understand. Yeah. Having grace for your friends who are black or Hispanic, who maybe are short with you or snap at you because it's not the right time to have this conversation, having grace for each other um, and really honoring each other and how you speak about these things. Just being angry. Isn't the answer. It's not enough Mm -hmm. to just be angry about this, no matter what color your skin is. So I'm going to end on the scripture from James one verse 19 through 21, which says my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen slow to speak and slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Thanks for joining us for our sermon podcast. We would love for you to join us on Sunday morning or in one of our small groups during the week. And you can get more information about that at DentonNorthChurch.com.